All right, welcome back to another episode of the Cody Tucker Show. As always, I'm your host, Cody Tucker. Be sure to like and subscribe, share with a friend, all that good stuff. So, um, from the day that I'm recording this, uh, I have just found out that quite possibly the greatest American icon of all time has passed away. Rest in peace, Jerry Springer. My God, this is hitting me hard, Um, which I know that for a lot of people, they feel like nostalgia for certain shows. Like the main one that you hear about is people who say, oh, whenever I was a kid, if I stayed home sick from school, watch Price is Right. So whenever they see Price is Right, they feel like that nostalgic feeling of being a kid, staying home from school sick and watching old Bobby Barker. Um try to help a 90-year-old woman spin a giant fucking wheel. For me, Prices Right's a little bit on that level, but the big one was Jerry Springer. Like, staying home, like, you know, sick or whatever, or, like, going to, like, my dad's work during the summers and just, you know, trying not to get yelled at so I'm fucking sitting by the TV at his job and like watching fucking Jerry Springer and whatever shit was coming on regular TV back in like the early 2000s. Um, I mean, Jerry Springer is a goddamn American hero. Like, I mean, I, I've, it is the most fascinating television show of all time. Uh, I mean, the dude basically invented trash TV, which myself growing up, very white trash. Um, Jerry Springer was like, he was like our Gandhi. <laughs> like, <laughs> he was the MLK for white trash, redneck hillbillies, myself included. Um, and so whenever I found out Jerry Springer died, immediately... Yeah. Had my parents say, hey, did y'all hear uh, fucking Jerry Springer died? The response I got was something I was not expecting. So, in all the years of me watching Jerry Springer, my parents like seeing me as a child watching Jerry Springer, and them sometimes watching it with me, like, you know, which really just shows like the trashness of uh, (laughs) my upbringing. (laughs) It's like, you know, me and the parents would sit around the TV watching, um, you know, a black dude get pissed off that he can't join the KKK. Or watching uh, a brother who got his sister pregnant and the other brother is really jealous. (laughs) Like, in all these years of watching Jerry Springer, I did not know until today that I had a pretty sizable chunk of my extended family featured on an episode of Jerry Springer back in the day. <laughs> I never knew that until now. I was like, how in the fuck do y'all not tell me that we had like family members on Jerry Springer? Like, so apparently it was just this all out family brawl, which, um, happened quite a bit. So it could have been <laughs> any number of, uh, my family members that, you know, got in this situation. But, yeah, there was, like, a family event where it ended up turning into just a giant white trash brawl. 
And to resolve said brawl, they went on Jerry Springer's show <laughs> to resolve it. I'm trying my hardest to find the episode so that I can see, like, how the fuck it went down. But I have never been more simultaneously proud and ashamed in my entire life. Like, it feels like I lost my virginity again. Because that's the feeling I had back <laughs> then, too. On that day, I felt very happy and very disgusted. Um, and that is circling back to the present and how I am feeling knowing that I had, you know, a chunk of my family on Jerry Springer's show. My God. I mean, Jerry is just... Like, that dude was so fucking incredible. You know? To be the mayor of Cincinnati and get busted for paying for a hooker with a personal check... Ooh. <laughs> that takes some brass ones. And then to, like, bounce back in the greatest way possible. Like, you know, you're a mere mortal would have succumbed to, you know, the, uh, you know, just overall shame and disgust and just, you know, withered away. Not Jerry Springer. This motherfucker bounced back, you know, pitching. He, this motherfucker came back throwing 100 mile an hour fucking sliders right down the middle. Jerry Springer show fucking changed the world. Uh, you know, like you have to have respect for that. Even if you, you know, aren't a fan of seeing like, you know, incest. Uh, <laughs> which, you know, that's on you. <laughs> I mean, I loved it, man. I loved every fucking thing about Jerry Springer. I love seeing just people beat the shit out of each other within seconds of being on stage. It just, it felt like home. <laughs> I mean, it 100% felt like Thanksgiving at the, uh, at the Tucker household. Watching any episode of, uh, of old Springer. So, you know, rest in peace, Spring Dog. We'll miss you forever. My God. So, um... Also, from the time that I'm recording this, uh, again, Jerry Springer no longer with us. Uh, but from the time I'm recording this, the Bam Margera saga <laughs> has gotten, woo, has gotten out of hand. Um, again, as of right now, he is alive. By the time this episode comes out, that might not be the case. <laughs> like, I, I'm a very slippery slope away from becoming a a degenerate gambler. Like, my my gambling is getting is ver is on the cusp of becoming out of hand. And normally, it's because I just bet on shit that I know nothing about. But this would be a bet that is about as sure as it gets. Is that by the time this episode comes out, Ben Margera will not be alive. <laughs> I mean, holy fuck. So, in case anyone doesn't know, again, from the time this is being recorded, 
Bam Margera is somewhere in the Pennsylvania wilderness with an eight-year-old child and some chick. I guess, like, hiding out. (laughs) And apparently smoking meth, which, you know, that's something that, um, you know, I'm... I'm decently familiar with the adverse effects of meth addiction. (laughs) Not from personal experience. Um, I would not be, you know, 360 pounds if I was, you know, a chronic meth user. Um, But I definitely grew up in a neighborhood that had a lot of uh, laboratories. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of zombies just walking up and down the streets, getting meth, going back to whatever little hobble they lived in, using the meth, 30 minutes later saying, damn, we're all out of meth, and walking back to uh, the laboratory. People who are on meth are operating on a vastly different wavelength than the rest of us. It is just a weird mixture of 1960s zombies and 28 Days Later zombies. <laughs> Where, the <laughs> in general, very slow-moving, um, kind of just you know lumbering around, and then out of nowhere become rabid fucking animals. Who also, like have a real fascination with a copper wiring. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, you know, like if you're trying to turn on your AC in the middle of the summer and it doesn't come on, the meth heads got to it. Uh, Yeah, it is a, it's a hell of a drug. And and somewhere there is a Bam Margera on the loose who is all fucking hopped up on methamphetamine and is a, I mean, a real danger to the rest of the world. <laughs> oh, holy shit. Like, can you imagine? So just picture you are walking through the woods in Pennsylvania, hunting, going on a walkabout, looking for, you know, buried a buried shoebox filled with, you know, 1980s Playboys. Um, whatever it is you do in the woods. And like in the distance, you just hear Bam Margera's voice. (laughs) It would be the most, the woods are terrifying. The wilderness, the forest is to me the second scariest place on earth behind like the deep ocean. And the only way that the wilderness could become scarier is for there to be a meth-addicted Bam Margera running around in it. <laughs> I would much rather there be a Bigfoot, a, you know, deliverance gang of, you know, butt-fucking um, hillbillies, uh, you know, take them panties off. I would take that any day over a meth-addicted Bam Margera. It is, boy, it's not good. Um, yeah, Don Vito would be proud. (laughs) Holy shit. I mean, hey, I guess, you know, 
I hope things work out for the dude. But, I mean, once you're... I mean, he's, like, now turning into, like, Ted Kaczynski. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. Um, let's see. What else is going on in the news? Um, this is a good one. So, Praz, <laughs> which, if you haven't heard that name in 20 years, yeah, join, you're, join the rest of us. So, Praz, former... Uh, one-third of the hip-hop group Fugees, uh, obviously along with Wyclef and uh, Miss Lauren Hill, is basically about to spend the rest of his life in prison for <laughs> helping the Chinese government to completely like persuade U.S. presidential elections. That is a story. That every sentence, like the every next sentence, is more fucking bananas than the previous sentence. <laughs> like, never in my life did I think I would wake up, scroll through social media, and see an article <laughs> about Praz basically being arrested on like high treason. <laughs> oh my god! I mean. And it, I mean, just so many questions. Like, there's way more questions than answers in this story. Like, for one, why pros? Out of all people in the world of hip hop slash rap music, like, why did you pick someone who? Like, pros. I mean, one, the Fugees haven't been relevant in over twenty years. Two, out of the Fugees, he's the third most relevant. And there's fucking three of them. Like, it makes... Like, in what way is someone going to vote a certain way because Praz told them to? I would be much more likely to vote for a candidate. Fucking Trick Daddy has a much higher chance of swaying my vote than Praz. <laughs> I mean, for one, I'm a massive Trick Daddy fan, so I'm actually kind of being serious with that. But, you know, and so, like, in my head, what I was thinking is, so you know, like, how in Russia they're still watching to them new episodes of Knight Rider and TJ Hooker because they're like 30 years behind. <laughs> like, is China the same way? Like, in China, do they think that the Fujis are like... <laughs> do they think like Praz is like hip-hop royalty and like just the hot shit? <laughs> like, I mean, they must just not know that... We don't give a fuck about pros anymore. And haven't for a long time. Uh, one time, one time. <laughs> the, I mean, it is... Boy, it is bizarre. Like, finding out that pros helped rig... And actually, according to the article, multiple elections. <laughs> finding out that that Joe Biden is president 
because of pros. I mean, it it'd be like finding out that like that Mr. Cheeks was responsible for 9/11. <laughs> or like Raekwon was responsible for fucking coronavirus, which Wu-Tang Wuhan close enough. Um god, it is just so weird. You know, I thought after like 2020, because everybody thought the year 2020 was going to be an incredible year, blah, blah, blah. Uh, then Kobe Bryant dies, and then everything goes to shit. Now, whether the two things are related, uh, who knows. But I feel like, so there's, the, to go even like more into the weeds, there are some people who have a theory that because the world was supposed to end on December 21st, 2012, um, and it didn't, there are some people who think that it actually did, and we are living, we all died that day. The whole world was destroyed, and we are all living in just this weird fucking multiverse, parallel, you know, existence. Which I immediately think, oh, somebody's been doing DMT. (laughs) Uh, But also, the more that shit like this happens, the more I think, yeah, it might have. <laughs> like, we might all be living in just this crazy fucking existence that um, isn't reality. Because for us to be finding out that Praz has been rigging elections <laughs> is... I mean, my God, it just makes no sense. But, yeah, that's life. Um... So the last thing I was going to talk about is there is just something I've been noticing, like, in general, is this trend of, like, hot white chicks making documentaries about how hard their lives were. So, at first, like, Paris Hilton made one about just how, like, difficult her life was growing up in like one of the richest families in the fucking country while being smoking fucking hot. Then Pamela Anderson made one about how difficult it was to be Pamela Anderson in the nineties. And apparently now Brooke Shields is making one same exact situation. It's boo hoo. Whenever I was young and hot, I was treated with disrespect I have never felt less sorry for someone (laughs) than Paris Hilton, Pamela Anderson, and Brooke Shields. Sorry, (laughs) I mean, sorry to sound crass, but, you know, I just, it's so weird seeing, like, like, hot white women have the easiest existence of anyone in the world. It's like, I mean, you don't have to, you don't have to have any talents whatsoever, clearly, and you can still become massively rich, massively famous, just because you're super fucking hot. Like, like Brooke Shields, Pamela Anderson, Paris Hilton, arguably three of the most attractive, like in their prime, most attractive women to ever live. And... Like, I'm somehow, we're somehow supposed to all say we're so sorry 
that you had some difficulties in your life. I mean, look, apparently Pamela Anderson got a, an unwanted look at uh, Tim Allen's tool. <laughs> Boo-hoo. You know, to have the life that Pamela Anderson has had, the, you know, the ease of that life, the things I would do to Tim Allen, <laughs> like, like if that was the trade-off, and all she had to do was just kind of look at it on accident, sort of. I mean, I would have, God, I mean, I would have gotten Eiffel Towered by him and fucking, uh, what was his name, Richard Kind, <laughs> while the fucking neighbors, like, looking over the fence. <laughs> like, I, I mean, you know, I'm not saying, like, it does, you know, it's not, I'm not saying it's okay but to make these like documentaries, and I think Pam Anderson wrote a book about it, like to make all this shit centered around like how difficult, like these, these traumatic events. I'm just saying there are people who have it a hell of a lot worse. There are people, you know, I mean, sorry, fucking Pam Anderson and Brooke Shields, but there are people who are ugly as fuck, overweight, shit personalities, who also went through a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> and you don't see me writing a fucking book about it. And I don't, I mean, I, oh, fuck, it is so frustrating. Like, do you ever, okay. Like, white women are, like, hot white women are basically the pet cats of humans. Like, every time that I go to someone's house, or, like, you know, I'd go to, like, my grandparents' house, whoever, and they had pet cats, I felt so much resentment for these cats because they had such a fucking easy existence and didn't seem... To give a fuck. <laughs> like the dogs are just happy they're alive. <laughs> like they are happy that someone is there and that they exist. But these cats have a arguably even easier life. And are still just snobby pricks. That is the sentiment that I get from like seeing these like fucking documentaries these books about how hard it was to be smoking fucking hot, rich, and famous at one point in your life. And arguably, all three of them are still super hot. Pamela Anderson, I mean, the, the fucking shaven eyebrows is a little weird. Um, but still, I mean, Pamela Anderson is... I mean, she might be like the hottest woman to ever live. And yeah, I can't, I, I don't feel sorry for you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, I hate that I probably sound like an asshole, but I, I don't feel sorry for you. Like you have like all three of those motherfuckers have the easiest life you could imagine. So. I mean, look at me. I am, I mean, I have nothing to offer. 
<laughs> I mean, like I, I don't have shit, and I will probably be broke my entire life, and yet I still don't think that uh, that people should have like feel sorry for me about anything. So why the fuck should we feel sorry? For Pamela Anderson, Brooke Shields, or Paris Hilton. You know. I don't know. Maybe I'm just being a dick. Maybe, you know, I don't know. I guess it's, maybe it's resent. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the fuck it is, but I just... It is so fucking annoying. <laughs> but, you know. I wish the best for, for Pamela Anderson and Brooke Shields. I know uh, life is so difficult. Uh, hopefully, um, you know, hopefully you'll make it through. <laughs> All right. So moving on from this, um, got three new stories to talk about. These should be pretty fascinating. Um, two are related. Actually, they're all three kind of related, I think. Um, but I guess you'll find out by uh, listening to it. Um, all ten of you. <laughs> so, without further ado, let's uh, let's go through some stories. All right. So, to kick things off, got three stories that are, I mean, to fit in with just the overall theme, pretty fucking bizarre. <laughs> uh, the first one, which hopefully you'll find these interesting. I think. Most people will probably find them pretty fascinating. Uh, the first one is about a guy named Jim Gordon. You probably don't know the name, but you should be pretty familiar with his work. Jim Gordon was a drummer, studio musician mostly, um, worked with some of the biggest artists of all time. Like in 1963, when he was 17, he started working with the Everly Brothers. And from then, he became the studio drummer, working with um, the Beach Boys on the Pet Sounds album, worked on Steely Dan's Pretzel Logic, Frank Zappa's Apostrophe album, um, a lot of like, you know, very well known studio work. Then became the drummer for Eric Clapton's new band after Eric Clapton left Cream uh, called Derek and the Dominoes. Derek and the Dominoes, arguably most famous song, a song called Layla, which if you've ever seen Goodfellas, it's basically the theme song to Goodfellas. The piano part that is like, you know, this famous um, like kind of interlude between the regular part of the song and then the kind of ending was also was written by Jim Gordon. So this guy was a studio drummer. Allegedly wrote the piano part. There's a, some discrepancies on whether or not he actually wrote it or whether like it was his girlfriend's sister or something like that. Um, but he, for all intents and purposes, wrote one of the most famous piano melodies of all time. Jim Gordon, without a doubt, one of the... I mean, without that, one of the greatest studio musicians of all time. Um, and you can look through, like, the list of everything he did. And, it I mean, it is 
this giant list of some of the greatest albums in rock and roll history. Um, worked like toured as you know a touring musician with extraordinary people. Like he were he did um, Joe Cocker's uh, what was it the Mad Englishman? I think I wrote it down. Um, da, 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 da. yeah, Mad Dogs and Englishman tour. Um, he was the drummer for that tour, which. I mean, there is a a whole side story to the Joe Cocker, <laughs> to that uh, tour, where basically Joe Cocker highly underestimated how much money a tour costs and basically bankrupted himself doing this ridiculously over-the-top tour and, for the most part, never recovered from it. Um, so Jim Gordon's working on that. He also does Alice Cooper's... Um, the Alice Cooper Goes to Hell album. I mean, just this huge range of work. I mean, would be, if it wasn't for what happened later in his life, would be highly esteemed, highly regarded as just this incredible musician. Um, and there'd be no controversy, <laughs> no issues. But Jim Gordon had what obviously later became known as paranoid schizophrenia. Um, I mean, he was diagnosed, I think, quite a bit later in life. But starting from a pretty young age, Jim Gordon started hearing voices in his head. And it just became a thing that happened that he would, that he was like for sure struggling with, but could kind of cope with it. Wasn't interfering with his work too much. But as he got a little older, like what happens with most people who are schizophrenic, um, it just progressed and progressed and progressed to a point where things got real out of hand. So what most of the voices that he were was hearing were apparently the voices from his mother, who he was raised by. There's mixed readings on what their relationship was like, but a lot of what you read about their relationship was that she was not great. <laughs> and so Jim Gordon one night in 1983 went to his mother's house after just a night of just constant hearing these voices, I guess just got to a breaking point, went to his mother's house, took a hammer and just smashed her fucking head in and then stabbed her to death with a butcher knife. And <laughs> I mean, that's pretty much the story of Jim Gordon. <laughs> I mean, I hate to leave it off on such a shit note, but yeah, I mean, Jim Gordon kills his mom, goes to prison and died uh, last month in prison. Which is the reason why I was going to talk about it is because I saw that Jim Gordon died and I was like, fuck, I know this name. She died like the beginning of March, so beginning of last month. I was like, fuck, I know this name. Like, how do I know this name? And it said rock drummer, and I was like, man, that fucking sounds familiar. So I have this like weird habit where I go on Wikipedia and read Wikipedia articles about, um, which I'm not like a huge Wikipedia person in general. Um, but I do like to go in there and read stories of like the makings of certain albums, like read who the personnel was, who worked on it, some of the 
backstory behind the songs. And um, so I'll just think of an album in my head that sounds interesting, and I'll do that. I'll just go read, um, you know, what was, what happened during the making of Pet Sounds? What happened during the making of Apostrophe? And so that's where I kind of started hearing um, about Jim Gordon, because he obviously worked on these albums. And yeah, and then read that shit about him just butchering his own mom. I was like, holy fuck. <laughs> Woo. Wild. So... Now, so Jim Gordon thing is just like a little, uh, a little uh, hors d'oeuvre, an amuse bouche, if you will. Um, these next two, quite a bit more involved, and are actually related. The Jim Gordon thing's not related to shit. It's just he died last month. Thought it was kind of interesting, crazy shit. When you go listen to those albums, just think the guy playing the drums fucking stabbed his mom to death. Um. So the next story is about a fella named Jack Parsons. Also a name probably not too familiar with. But Jack Parsons could be one of the craziest motherfuckers to ever live. Second only to the person I'm going to talk about after. (laughs) Uh, It's a real twofer here. So Jack Parsons, what he's most famous for is being one of the most revolutionary rocket scientists ever, especially in U.S. history. Um, I mean, you could obviously include the fucking Nazis that came over, like Werner von Braun and, you know, those fellows. But, you know, good old American-bred rocket scientists, Jack Parsons is right there at the top, which is highly influential, um, ridiculously intelligent, just a dude who grew up being super fascinated by science fiction, reading sci-fi comics, books, all this stuff, which led to a fascination with rocketry. That led to him working for NASA, uh, helping invent um, like all these different kinds of like propulsion systems. Like Basically, the reason why NASA became NASA, became as big as it is, and with, especially with like the Apollo programs, a big chunk of that is because of Jack Parsons. That is not the real fascinating story of Jack Parsons. The fascinating story is his his personal life. So Jack Parsons in 1939 became highly influenced by the works of Aleister Crowley. If you don't know who Aleister Crowley was, Aleister Crowley was a kind of occultist leader, um... Possibly a genius, possibly just a fucking lunatic. He's considered the most wicked man. Was it? He was like the most wicked man on earth. Like had all these like titles. He basically started a weird cult. Um, believed that he had discovered this Egyptian goddess that spoke to him, and um, you know, a fucking strange human being. But a lot of people got very influenced by these kind of hermetic teachings, specifically of Aleister Crowley. One of those being Jack Parsons. So Jack Parsons, when he's not, you know, working for NASA, is living in this bungalow 
where he invites all these people over, has all these people at his house who are also, they're called Thelemites because they believe in the, uh, the religion of Thelema, which is Aleister Crowley's uh, cult. And they basically just do weird fucking conjurings and rituals. Uh, one of the things that the Jack Parsons would do is he would like try to figure out how to like create a poltergeist in the home, <laughs> which I mean, you've lost me on this shit. Like I can follow some of the Aleister Crowley shit. Some of it's kind of interesting. Um, making your house haunted. <laughs> I'm out. Um, so that's one of the main things they were doing. He also, um, so he also had people who were basically like kind of recruits, people who would just come in because they were curious about what this, you know, what this cult was doing. One of the people who came in was this young fella, very charismatic, according to Jack Parsons. So Jack Parsons ended up writing letters about this person to Aleister Crowley saying, quote, is in touch with higher intelligence. So Jack Parsons thinks this is the guy who's basically going to create this weird hermetic occult existence on Earth. That person was a fella named L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> you probably should be familiar with that name. L. Ron Hubbard is the guy who would later, after his involvement with Jack Parsons, would go on to create this sort of philosophy, psychology system called Dianetics, which would transform into the Church of Scientology. L. Ron Hubbard and Jack Parsons hit it off fucking immediately. Aleister Crowley, not a fan of L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> Aleister Crowley's like, this dude's a fucking lunatic. He needs to go. Jack Parsons, you need to stop messing around with L. Ron Hubbard. Jack Parsons, too much in his head thinking, you know, this is the guy that is going to change the world. So at the time, Jack Parsons had was married to this one woman, left her for her younger sister, which fucking baller move. Um, he also then wants to do this ritual with L. Ron Hubbard where they um, basically do, it's called the Babylon, hold on, I wrote it down, I think. Yeah, it's called the, so he wants to do this ritual called the Babylon Working. The Babylon Working, according to, you know, their occult beliefs, would bring forth this goddess who would be like the most beautiful woman to ever live, blah, 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 and would like, create Babel, like the new Babylon. That's a very big connection with a lot of these fucking crazy people is their fascination with Babylon. Um, and to perform this ritual, uh, the person doing the ritual, which would be Jack Parsons would have to do the, you know, ceremony itself while masturbating onto these like holy stone tablets <laughs> while the sidekick, Al Ron Hubbard, 
would sit in the corner and take notes and like recite these, you know, spells basically. <laughs> and so they did that, I think, multiple times. Then <laughs> Jack Parsons is just whacking it onto a couple of bricks <laughs> while fucking chubby freak L. Ron Hubbard is just jotting down notes. <laughs> like, like, basically, like giving him a pep talk while he's, you know, cranking one out. And then, kind of odd. Elron Hubbard ends up running away with uh, Jack Parsons' wife. That's not odd. If you know anything about Elron Hubbard, um, that's right in his uh, mo: is running away with the wives of other people and just being an all-around scumbag. He also him Elron Hubbard and Jack Parsons' ex-wife now with Elron Hubbard basically scammed Jack Parsons out of all of his life savings. But before that happened. They do the Babylon working, and pretty much immediately, I think within a you know a very short amount of time, this woman shows up to the bungalow, a woman named Marjorie Cameron, who, by all accounts, shit, my account also, smoking hot. Like, if you look up pictures of Marjorie Cameron, which I'm going to put one here, um, Marjorie Cameron was fucking smoking and they believed that the Babylon working worked that they had conjured this woman to be that goddess um Alistair Crowley's finding out about all this and is like y'all are out of your fucking minds like Marjorie Cameron is not the goddess like according to Alistair I mean Alistair Crowley's basically like eh like she's kinda hot <laughs> but he, I guess he may not have had a thing for redheads. Who knows? Alistair Crowley does not think that this shit worked, and that's when he's like, all right, cut L. Ron Hubbard off. Get his ass out of there. Jack Parsons is just kind of whatever. I, this woman's fucking banging hot. So he ends up with Marjorie Cameron. Um, And ends up in a relationship with Marjorie Cameron. They end up, you know, like kind of staying together for a while. Then in, let me make sure I have the date right. So then in 1952, at the age of 37, Jack Parsons, who has all meanwhile still been working on building these rockets and working with explosives and all this stuff is working on an explosive in his base, in the basement of that bungalow has a malfunction of some sort and blows his ass up. And dies. And Marjorie Cameron is basically like. Fucked after that. And she ends up. Going off and like. Kind of hanging out with some weird people. One of which. Is a fella who is still alive. By the name of Kenneth Anger. Which that will bring me. To. <laughs> the next story. The next and last story of today. So. Jack Parsons dead. Marjorie Cameron runs off with with Kenneth Anger. So to get into the story of Kenneth Anger, I'm so gonna center it around the curse of. So Kenneth Anger is a filmmaker. There is a movie that he made called Lucifer Rising, which by all by not all accounts by a lot of accounts was cursed. 
because the idea of the movie, which I've seen parts of it, and okay. Um, <laughs> Lucifer Rising is basically a movie about like conjuring Lucifer on Earth. And according to Kenneth Anger and some other people, he actually did it. And if you watch the movie, you are seeing an actual ritual, like an ancient ritual for conjuring, you know, evil spirits of sorts, a.k.a. Lucifer. Whether you believe any of that shit, I mean, kind of doesn't matter. But it's just like the pinnacle of Kenneth Anger's wildness and so kind of want to go into like the backstory of kenneth anger and the film lucifer rising so kenneth anger born uh lives in southern california grew up in southern california went to school with shirley temple uh meanwhile this dude's alive right now kenneth anger as of the day i'm recording this kenneth anger is still alive and kicking he's like 93 91 something like that so he grew up with shirley temple um, worked in, you know, kind of worked Hollywood adjacent. Like he's diving into like the Hollywood world. I think his like parents did shit in Hollywood. Um, again, kind of adjacent to main Hollywood. Kenneth Anger, um, ends up also converting to Aleister Crowley's religion of Thelema. So, to tie it back to Parsons and all that, Kenneth Anger is also one of like the earlier um, kind of attractors to Aleister Crowley's teachings. Kenneth Anger takes it <laughs> to a whew, a wild level, and this there's going to be a lot of names brought up, a lot of connections. Try to follow along, and trust me, I'm not even mentioning all, close to all of them. I'm just trying to get as many of them as I can. Um, in a decently short amount of time without it just going deep into the weeds. So Kenneth Anger becomes really heavy, like heavily involved in Aleister Crowley's teachings. Um, at this time, he also begin. That's when he starts making films and making some bizarre short films and shit like that. I like kind of like West Coast Andy Warhol. Where if you watch any of these Andy Warhol films, it's basically like a dude sleeping for fucking eight hours. There's like weird butthole stuff. Kenneth Anger's doing similar shit, but way more esoteric, dark, fucking just weird and creepy. Um, he ends up going to San Francisco and living in San Francisco for a while. When he lives in San Francisco, he becomes really good friends with a guy named Anton LaVey. Anton LaVey ends up making the Church of Satan. And Anton LaVey is super good, for, very close to Kenneth Anger, even makes Kenneth Anger the godfather, or I guess devil father, <laughs> of, Al of uh, Anton LaVey's, one of Anton LaVey's children. Um, there's also, like, Kenneth Anger gets involved with some of, like, their shit. Um,. And ends up meeting all these people. One of the women who is kind of in Anton LaVey's circle is a woman named Susan Atkins. That name will pop up again <laughs> here pretty soon. Um, but it's just a, another weird connection. So Anton LaVey, 
Kenneth Anger hang out. Kenneth Anger ends up um, making films kind of on his own. He ends up making this movie called Fireworks. Which Fireworks is the movie that gives Kenneth Anger, you know, a reputation. Um, mostly because he was charged for, like, criminal indecent, like, public indecency or, you know, whatever these weird, like, barbaric... Um, Hayes Code laws were back in like the 50s and uh, 60s. Because Fireworks is basically like a super homoerotic film. I mean, pretty hot if you ask me. You know. <laughs> and Kenneth Anger, yeah, just gets super steeped in controversy. One of the people who is in the audience at the showing of Fireworks is a guy named Alfred Kinsey. Alfred Kinsey is a you know doctor who came up with the Kinsey scale of like sexual orientation. So like you'll hear people say that like what do they rank on a Kinsey scale? That means like how gay are they or how straight are they? Like I think it was like one to eleven or one to thirteen, something like super gay, but <laughs> and it's basically like that no one is there's no such thing as gay or straight that everyone is on a spectrum of sexuality. Very revolutionary. Alfred Kinsey, pretty fucking fascinating, but also wildly bizarre dude. He becomes friends with Kenneth Anger uh, through this movie, which Alfred Kinsey becomes, like, falls in love with this film. Ergo, friendship with Kenneth Anger. Um, so then... Kenneth Anger begins working as Alfred Kinsey's assistant, like helping him research. Uh, then Alfred Kinsey dies, who Alfred Kinsey had basically become like a father figure to Kenneth Anger. And this kind of spirals Kenneth Anger out into a real weird place where Kenneth Anger, who needs a lot, needs money, ends up writing this book called Hollywood Babylon. Hollywood Babylon is a very, very controversial book because it's basically just filled with super dark, fucked up Hollywood stories that may or may not be true. And it's basically just all coming from Kenneth Anger's mind of like things he's heard, like rumors, gossip, all that kind of shit. And he basically just compiled it into a book and most of the shit probably isn't true, but some of it is. And that's the problem is that you don't know which ones are not true and which ones are. Except, Well, I mean, there are some that people are like, oh, shit, that actually was true. Like shit with like Rudolph Valentino. Um, there's like Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Doris Day. Like all these are either, like just all these massively famous people from back in the day. And he's just writing about how they were all like gay, drug addicts, you know into satanic shit like goes through all these things the book ends up like just catching a shitload of attention and he ends up getting sued later on obviously um like you can't just make up shit about people but Kenneth Anger's like well fuck it I'll do whatever I want Kenneth Anger if you haven't figured out a bit of a, a wild card so he writes this book makes you know an okay amount of money uh, writing the book. This is when he ends up working on this film, Lucifer Rising. 
the film Lucifer Rising, which I've kind of already explained the gist of it, Kenneth Anger is looking for people who could play the role of Lucifer. He ends up living, Kenneth Anger, in this place that they called the Russian Embassy. It's not an actual embassy. It's just this like huge like kind of hotel building that looks like an embassy and may actually have been the Russian Embassy. I don't know. But he ends up living in it and basically just renting out the room, like renting out space with him to young men as he tries to figure out, could any of these people play the role of Lucifer? The person he settles on is a guy named Bobby Boussole. Um Bobby Boussole, young, handsome musician, who Kenneth Anger thinks is perfect to play the role of Lucifer. Uh, they end up like working on the film for a while um, and then have a falling out. Mostly because Kenneth Anger is gay. Bobby Boussoulet wasn't. Kenneth Anger wants to fuck Bobby Boussoulet. Bobby Boussoulet wants to just bang gross hippie chicks. And that creates like some resentment between Anger and Bobby Boussoulet. Falling out. Bobby Boussoulet ends up going uh, to Southern California. Where he runs into ex-Anton LaVey girl Susan Atkins. They meet at Spawn Ranch, which is where, at the time, Charles Manson and the Manson family are living. Bobby Boussoulet, under orders of Charles Manson and may or may not, like, alongside Charles Manson, torture and murder a guy named Gary Hinman. Bobby Boussoulet gets arrested, goes to prison, I believe, still in prison to this day. Um... So there's the weird Anton LaVey, Susan Atkins, Charles Manson, all this shit tied together through Kenneth Anger. So Kenneth Anger falls out with Bobby Boussoulet. He's like, well, fuck, who the hell's going to be my damn devil? He flies to London and ends up hanging out with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards and pretty much convinces Mick Jagger to play the role of Lucifer. And Mick Jagger's like kind of into it, like, fuck yeah, I'll do it. And... Kenneth Anger's hanging out with Mick Jagger's girlfriend, Marianne Faithful, um, and Keith Richards and his girlfriend, I think her name is like Anita Pallenberg, um, and convinces like Marianne Faithful to be in the movie. And then kind of last minute Mick Jagger pulls out and is like, yeah, but my brother would do it. And he's like, well, you're great. Chris Jagger <laughs> can, can be a loose frozen. And he's like, ah, fuck this. So Kenneth Anger ends up, um, at this point, um, it's kind of like, well, fuck, nobody's going to play goddamn Lucifer. He ends up finding Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin and kind of sort of living with Jimmy Page for a little while because, to tie a lot of other shit back, Jimmy Page has, at this point, moved into the home, a, a home in Scotland that was owned by Aleister Crowley. Because Jimmy Page is also a massive, massive fan of Aleister Crowley. Buys his house, buys like every original work, like writing he can find of Aleister Crowley's, and proceeds to do magic in Aleister Crowley's house. And shit gets real out of hand for Jimmy Page. So, Kenneth Anger 
tries to help him exercise the demons that are now living <laughs> in Jimmy Page's house, formerly Alistair Crowley's house, on Loch Ness in Scotland. And also convinces Jimmy Page to write the music for Lucifer Rising. They end up having a huge falling out, and Kenneth Anger puts a curse on Jimmy Page, which, as of, uh, you know, 2023, motherfucker doesn't seem to be too <laughs> too cursed, but says, basically, that like he put this like death curse on Jimmy Page. And now Kenneth Anger's fucked. Nobody to write the music, nobody to play Lucifer. So he ends up finding just some random dude to play Lucifer, and ends up contacting from prison Bobby Boussoulet, former musician, to write the music for, for Lucifer Rising. So if you watch the movie, which I don't necessarily recommend, it's fucking weird and it's not really that great. Um, but if you watch it and you hear this weird music, that person making it is a guy who uh, tortured and murdered someone. So let me just reverse that and say that again. <laughs> so the guy who wrote the music for that movie is a guy who tortured and murdered someone under the guidance of Charles Manson. And yeah, Kenneth Anger stayed kind of involved with, you know, kind of the outer edges of art um, all the way up until now. Dude is still alive, still kicking. Um, yeah, that's the story of Kenneth Anger. So, with that, goodbye. <laughs>